0: Hey, sippin' studiers. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at (music) christianlivingmag.com. Good morning, everybody. We are in the 11th lesson here in Genesis, finishing up chapter 8. In fact, there's, I think, what, two verses left in chapter 8. So just barely finishing up chapter 8 and then getting into 29. In fact, we're, we're doing all of 29. So we're going to do chapter 8, verse 20, all the way to 929. And, and a lot of that is because we're, we're balancing this out. Sip and study is designed to be something that's a little different. We we don't hit the shallow road to where we just barely skim topics, but we're not necessarily full on seminary level either in in depth. But we want to get in and we want to look at things appropriately and take the time that's necessary. Well, if you've been a Christian for very long, and even if you haven't, chances are you are familiar with the flood story. You know, God God flooded the earth, and Noah built an ark. And two by two, the animals went in, and it flooded, and it rained for 40 days, and then when the water receded, there you go, and then God gave the rainbow. Well, this this lesson today is titled The Rainbow because a good portion of this section is about God discussing that covenant made with Noah and his sons, and we'll see that with the rainbow, and that is the sign of the covenant of God, that he's not going to destroy the earth. Well, if you've been a Christian for very long, and again, even if you haven't, chances are you've heard that and you are aware of that. And so there's only so much in depth that we need to do there. There is a little bit of extra stuff that goes around it, so we are going to take some time. But with that in mind, instead of doing two really short sections, we just put them together. That way we can continue going through things because June, for our family, gets crazy busy, and we're going to basically take a little bit over a month off this summer because of travel fundraising for missions if you're new here we're missionaries heading out to Pakistan and fundraising i mean that's what we do <laughs> so uh yeah it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy so that's well where we'll be and what we'll be doing but until then right now let's dig into this chapter 8 verse 20 to 929 in the english standard version Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Now, mind you, this was after the flood happened. Waters fully receded. God said, it's time to get out. And Noah followed and came out. Now we're right here. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh." and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So this can actually break up into a lot of different sections, and depending on Depending on what sources you're going through, what study material you're using, this does break up all over the place. But we're just going to break this into two basic sections, two primary sections. First, we're going to see chapter 8, verse 20, all the way to 917. And this is the covenant with Noah. This is God's covenant with Noah. And then 18 to 29, the curse of Canaan. All right, 20 to 22. Let's just wrap up chapter eight here. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean burned and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So pause there for a second. Remember, not only did they go two by two, but when it came to the clean animals, when it came to the clean animals, they brought seven of each, seven depending on the translation, depending on study material, seven pairs or at least seven of each. So they had enough for food, food for the other animals, and burnt offerings, sacrifices like this. 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease there's actually quite a bit inside of this one small section these two verses that we want to unpack and and there's an element of a of a key a key defining theological element that starts with the foundation. And one of the key verses for that is is inside of this right here. So we're going to discuss that as well. But first of all, Noah's initial response here is something that we really want to take heart and take heed to. Noah's initial response to being allowed off the ark, mind you, it's been a year. They have been on there for a little over a year. We did the math last time. Go ahead and go back to it and take a look. But they have been on this ark for a year. And chances are he'd been building the Ark for almost 120 years up to that. This is a massive, massive ship. Lots of work that needed to be done. Everything was done by hand. And most of it was probably done solely by Noah and or his sons. And so it's a family project like rebuilding a car. And But they're building a boat from scratch. And the thing is massive. It has to hold enough animals to save all of creation, right? So they build this by themselves. Then they get on it and load it up with food and load it up with all the animals. God shuts it in, shuts it all in there, and they're on the waters for a torrential downpour and upspringing of the waters to flood the earth or at least that area for 40 days. And then it's off and on rain for 150 days until all of a sudden it starts to subside and it starts to drain. And they hit land, they hit the top of a mountain, and then they're stuck there. For like another seven months, six or seven months. They're there for a long time. So they're on the ship for a year and they're finally off. Noah's direct and initial response is worship. His direct response to this is worshiping God. That is something that we should take note to. They were saved, things went well. His first response is worship. He built an altar to sacrifice, which is a form of worship to the Lord. And that's what he does. Now, we see here that the Lord, again, all caps, Lord like this is is Yahweh. It's the name. It's his his intimate name. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the Lord said in his heart. Now, smelled the pleasing aroma, we see this throughout. It's in multiple different places in the Old Testament, especially when it's discussing burnt offering sacrifices, food sacrifices, things like that. It's just a way to indicate that it was a sacrifice that God approved of. God, God approved of the sacrifice and it worked and it was okay. It was, it was pleasing to God. Take a look at Exodus 29, 18. And burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Now, food offering, we want to be careful there. It's not saying that God is eating that and, and in some spiritual sense, he takes nourishment from the burning of the flesh. No, but it is an offering showing devotion to God. Okay. The, the root of pleasing here is is also it's a little bit of wordplay that's being used here. It's something that we don't see in English because it only makes sense in ancient Hebrew, <laughs> but it is wordplay. That's something that that you need to know about or should know about. It's just an interesting fact. The root of pleasing is the same root in Hebrew as what we have for Noah because Noah was going to create rest and do this. And so there's some wordplay going on here that Noah, God was pleased because he was righteous. Noah gave an offering and that offering was also pleasing to God. God was appreciative and it was pleasing to have that worship done towards him. And the Lord says, never again, never again will I curse the ground. Well, first of all, it's very easy to say, yeah, he did it one time, and maybe said, "Whoa," went a little too far, or that was a bit extreme, or whatever. You know, it's very easy to take a humanistic approach to this and just say, "Yeah, obviously that would be would be bad," and clearly God just doesn't know what he's doing, and so meh. no, God knows exactly what he's doing. God knows exactly what he's doing. But here's here's the key thing that to remember: this isn't the first time. This is not the first time that God has cursed the ground due to humanity. It's not. In fact, keep this in mind, we're only in chapter 8 of the entire Bible. First eight chapters. And this is the second time that God has cursed the ground due to the actions of humanity. Chapter 3, verse 17. And Adam to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life this is the second curse on the ground towards uh, on the ground because of the actions of humanity God is saying I'm not doing this again God's plan is different First of all, God's plan is now different. He wants to bring things back to the way it was supposed to be in that Edenic worldview, right? He wants to th- bring things back to where flesh and spirit work harmoniously and go together and they can interlive together in that Eden type of place, right? That's the goal. And mankind is, is not working well and this isn't happening well. And it's cursed the ground twice and says, I'm not doing this again. I'm not doing this again. I'm going to fix this a different way. I'm going to fix this a different way. And part of the reason is if you go back in through, again, you go back through the Watchers episode and going through some of this other stuff, th- there's some intervention happening from the spirit realm as well, right? And all forms of, whether you want to say mythology or spiritual elements or religious elements that come from this era and from this region, they all agree. There was stuff happening on both sides. And interacting here. And so people were being led astray. They were being taught by the spirit element. And God's just saying, you know what? People are being led astray too easily. I'm not going to curse the ground. And I'm not going to kill everything because of the heart of man again. We're doing this differently. And that's what he says. We're going to do it differently. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So again, saying, I'm not going to just wipe everything out. I'm not going to curse the ground anymore. I'm not going to wipe out all the creation, life again, because of this. While the earth remains, and this is important, verse 22, while the earth remains, why would it say that? Why? Unless the plan at that point. Now, remember, when creation was started, When creation started at the very beginning, it was created in the proper way. It didn't fall apart until sin entered. The ground was cursed. Things started to fall apart at what we would consider the original sin, where man and woman went against God and everything started to unravel because they listened to the serpent. Hey, everything started to unravel. It was made to last. It got cursed and fell apart because of that. So while the earth remains, that means God had already changed his plans and his intentions, and he has a plan to set things back to what they're supposed to be. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. This is a list of things that are still going to happen, saying it's not going to change. There's still going to be time to plant and a time to reap and harvest. There's still going to be cold and heat. There's still going to be summer and winter. There's still going to be day and night. This shall not cease and this is something that we as Christians believers w- we should lean into and recognize, okay? Are things changing on earth? Sure. But if you go through history, things have always shifted and changed on earth. Welcome to life on earth. That is the natural order and progression here on earth in the fallen state. It shouldn't be a surprise to us, but we have a promise right here. Until God says it's time for it to be done, we're still going to have these. We're still going to have these seasons. Okay, It's still going to remain. God has a plan and things are going to last until it's time to act on that plan. This is the first indication we have of judgment day. Right there in chapter eight of Genesis, God lets us know subtly that he has a plan and judgment day is going to happen. And there's going to be an even larger reset here. And things are going to go back to the way it was meant to be from the beginning. Now, going to go backwards just a just a tiny tiny little bit here in verse 21. This is that theological part where so in inside of protestantism. So we had catholicism and then orthodox and and we had the reformation movement and created protestantism, right? Where we started looking at things a little bit differently in the in the text and in the Bible. Now, Protestantism is now Splintered into lots of different groups. We have lots of different denominations. We have non denominational groups and movements. We have individual churches that are Bible, just Bible teaching churches. We have all sorts of different stuff. Okay. There's lots of different variations inside of this, which has been both a blessing and I, I suppose possibly even a little bit of a curse when it comes to the unification of the body. But God calls and leans on us all a little bit differently. And some of us, we, we need to link up like, you know, hands and feet need to be with hands and feet. They still need to be connected to the rest of the body, but the parts of the hand need to be there with the rest of the parts of the hand. So I, sometimes it, it makes sense and works, but we also need to be unified with everybody else. But anyway, inside of Protestantism, there are two basic large camps that you can say these are the two generic Segments inside of Protestantism, as far as theology is concerned, and then it splinters from there. First of all, you get what's known as the Calvinist theology, and then you get the Arminian theology, and then from there you even get the Wesleyan Arminian theology. Calvinist theology, in a nutshell, is man is evil from the beginning. Like we, when when we were in Eden, man was not evil, but from sin. Man is just inherently evil, and there's nothing they can do about it. It is but the grace of God that we are saved. There is no reason we should be saved. We don't get to a, we can't approach God because no one approaches God. God approaches us, and God chooses us, and this is where we get predestination from with Calvinism. God chooses us, and then gives us His Holy Spirit, and we have gifts and whatnot, but as far as man is concerned they are still what's known as totally depraved being fallen in nature and not going towards god is known as depravity and this verse right here the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth is one of the primary verses used for the theory or the theology of total depravity which is a calvinistic belief that man in man and women doesn't matter people are evil in the flesh regardless. And at no point does that change. The flesh is still evil, and we battle that. I'm gonna, I I gotta give a little credit here. We see evidence, like even Paul, who wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament, had a thorn in the flesh. Okay. There's evidence in scripture that goes both ways for this. Now, the Arminian, and specifically the Wesleyan Arminian, but primarily just the Arminian, they they also see depravity. But it's not total depravity. The Arminian approach to this is, and belief is, yes, from the beginning, after sin, from the beginning of life for for people, they are depraved. They go against God. If you've ever had a baby, you know what we're talking about, especially if you have a toddler. The idea that mankind is inherently good and there's some bad that happens is an outright lie. Just have a baby. Have a baby then have a toddler and see that toddler and that baby want to take everything and scream if they don't get their way, like, and do horrible, horrific things, hit, slap, punch. Like you, it's in human nature to do the bad things. We have to train and we have to do discipline and self-discipline and all of these things to go a different route. So Armenians say, yes, there's depravity, but by God's grace, He brings us back into order with that, and God allows us to have the will and ability to go back towards him, and especially when we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit, we partner with the Holy Spirit, and we work on things. Now, see, I I would agree with that. In fact, I would say the fact that we have the recognition that we do bad and we are told from an early time that we are to work on Certain things, we are supposed to be self-disciplined and work on different areas of our lives to work forward in that, is an indication that we are trying to do better, right? That through God's grace, we try to do better, but our core of the flesh is bad. But by God's grace, we can achieve higher levels of result. We are not totally depraved. Hope that clears some of that up. But this is one of those sections where that comes from. Now, let's take a look here. I wanna, I wanna point out again, the Holy Spirit is what guides us and pushes us forward in this and allows us to sanctify, to become more like Christ, to grow and to work in our level of holiness. That's not a common term that people want to use very often, is ah, I don't wanna, I don't wanna work on things in today's culture. Holiness is a bad thing in, in a lot of the today's culture. Why would we do that? Why would we work on these things? I'm perfect the way I am. Everybody else should see that. So why can't God see that? Well, because you're not. Why would we set goals to achieve if we were already perfect the way we are? Why would we work out? Why would we diet? Why would we set financial goals? Why do we have self-help books if we are, quote, perfect the way we are? This is just lunacy. That's all this is. That's all this is. It it makes no sense. It's a total lie. And it's one of those things that we just try to keep repeating over and over and over again so that we believe it ourselves, even though we know, obviously, just because of looking around, it is vastly apparent it's it's not true. But through the help of the Holy Spirit, we have that help to not only help us as believers, but then to also help the world to see that and to change because God doesn't just choose a select few to go with that. But God also then wants others to know as well. And we see things like this inside of John. In fact, let's take a look at uh, two different spots in John. John 14, 16 to 17. So John chapter 14, verses 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father, this is Jesus saying, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He will be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because... It neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. We have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us to help us transform us because he's the spirit of truth. He helps to correct us when we're wrong. He helps to encourage us to go the right direction. He helps us to discern right from wrong, to discern spirits of evil versus the spirits of good. Go on, John chapter 16, verses seven to 13. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Again, this is Jesus saying, I'm going I'm to leave. And it's to your advantage that I'm going to go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, again, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. Remember I said he helps also with the rest of the world. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world, a.k.a. Satan, is judged, not will be judged, is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Hey Sip and Studiers, as you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. I can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Let's keep going. Let's get into chapter nine. We've been here for like 30 minutes in two verses, right? It's okay. The rest of this, a lot of it goes pretty quick, okay? Because we all, again, if you've been a Christian for very long, You've heard that. You've heard this. You've heard this. All right. Verses one to four. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That sounds really familiar. Where have we heard that before? It almost sounds like something that God said to, I don't know, Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But he continues. Verse two. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea into your hands. They are delivered. Pause here. Just verse two. There's a lot of theology here. Some groups and some people take that to this section right here to mean that prior to the flood. The natural order completely went out the book, and that the animals weren't even obeying and and falling in line with humanity, and that animals were killing people. Now, mind you, again, you get into the Mesopotamian beliefs and the Apkalu teaching and doing all sorts of stuff. The sexual sin was astronomical. The war sin was astronomical. You go through all of this different stuff. It was crazy. And so the natural order was all messed up. Now, was it to the degree that animals were trying to act like kings and rule over people? I don't think so. I don't think animal nature changed. Human nature, according to this, when we get there, human nature did not change, which tells me the chances are animal nature did not change either. Okay. But what did change was not only are men just image bearers. God is saying from this spot, I am taking a step back. Not that I'm not intervening, not that I'm not working, not that I'm not doing things, but I am taking a step back. And I am going to let you as humanity to actually be what I've already set you up to be, my image bearers. You are now going to be what is here on the earth, doing the part of acting on my behalf, ruling and doing these things and ruling the earth. Okay. Verse three. Every moving thing that lives shall be food to you. It's the first indication that we get meat. People get to eat meat as okayed by God. Okay. Every living, every moving thing that lives shall be food to you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. In ancient Hebrew and ancient societies period, for the most part, they all kind of agreed Blood was life. The life was in the blood. If you took the blood out of the the creature or out of the person, it died. So yeah, life is in the blood. Okay. First of all, going all the way back, that be fruitful and multiply, that is something that we saw in the beginning. Genesis chapter one, verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth says, have dominion over, rule over. Now, God adjusts this and says, yes, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear, the reverence, some translations and and even inside of this word can actually mean terror. Of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands, they are delivered. Do with them as you wish. And on top of that, now you can eat them. Every living thing, just not the blood. Don't eat the blood, okay? Which basically is a way of saying, make sure it's dead. Make sure it's dead. Now, they took it very literally. They drained the blood out, so, and this, we still do this today. And a lot of the reason why we do it today is because the meat spoils. If you leave blood inside a dead animal, it spoils and it goes bad. It goes bad very fast. You drain the blood to help preserve it. So there you go. Five and six. And for your lifeblood, which was what we were starting, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. Interesting. This is another reason why people... We're saying that the natural order went all out of whack and animals were just going straight out and killing people and trying to rule over them, okay? Every beast I will require and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Okay, this is something to where people start to get the concept of capital punishment. Now, this isn't necessarily something, and and it goes further, it goes out. I mean, you look at Exodus 21, 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Exodus 21, 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. So we even see this in the Exodus, in Exodus talking about this. Yeah, if you kill a person, you're gonna die. If an animal kills a person, that animal's gonna die and it's not for eating. Like that is a, that is a bad animal. And a lot of that reason is, again, what if it has rabies? What if it has other kind of medical issues? You don't want to do that stuff. Part of it is it's just bad, you know, and, and it's a punishment. It's not for food. It's just a punishment kind of thing. Now, not really something that we see going forward in the New Testament. In fact, well, I mean, we do see it still happening and see all sorts of, of things happening. But when we look at what Jesus is saying, Jesus starts to shift the narrative and saying, you, you guys have missed the point. Right? that's A lot of Jesus's ministry was, to, to quote a, a, a great and famous commercial, you done messed up, Aaron. You missed the point. You guys missed the point on so many things on so many levels. And here's what we see in a roundabout way, but here's what we see from, from Jesus in Matthew 5, 38, 42. about Matthew 26, 52, Jesus said to him put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword because it's the natural order and it's it's just what it is like was even in the old testament as we saw here you, if you kill a person you're you're going to you're going to die by that this isn't this isn't something that we continue on today because we see grace we see forgiveness we see mercy and we are too honor that as God's people going forward as well. In fact, what happens when Jesus is on the cross and getting ready for the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus asked for their forgiveness. Jesus also tells us do not hate your enemy, but pray for your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Okay, there's a full paradigm shift that we see. This is to set things in a natural order into a set a foundation. Okay. That's something to where people, people tend to say there's God changed, God changed. No, God's setting a foundation for an early group of people. There was lawlessness. There was everything. This was pre 10 commandments. Even there's lawlessness. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And God just had to wipe out the entire earth or at least that region of the earth, which is where life was. God had to wipe it out to start all over again because things had gotten so out of hand. God is setting a foundation to build off of, to fine tune as things go. Verse 7, and you, this you here is plural. I don't know that God was saying it, you, but still. And you, is the plural you in Hebrew. This isn't just talking to Noah. This is talking to all of humanity. Be fruitful and Multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. It is a directive. It is a directive. It is a command. This is not just a, you know, if you feel like it. This is a command that we are to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. We are to continue to grow the population. It's actually a command of God. And I'm not saying, sitting here trying to say that, hey, families, you should have six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. And I'm not sitting here saying, hey, if you can't have children, there's something wrong with you and, you know, God's, God's have has issues with you. No, what I'm saying is, as a general purpose, we are commanded that our populations are supposed to grow. People are supposed to continue to grow and multiply and do like that. This is actually God's wishes for humanity, and it is a command towards humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Verses 8 to 11. See, we're cruising straight through this. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now, covenant is... Basically, it's like a, it's a legal term. It's like a contract, but it is a binding contract that is stronger than a written contract. It is a a very binding, very strong agreement and contract. All right. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. This is an ending in your generation. And with every living creature that is with you. So it's not just for people the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. This is for every living flesh-based creature, man, beast, bird, fish, you name it. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God is a God of order. He doesn't like the chaos. That's why when the spirit was floating over the void, the chaos, it was a chaos term. Remember, we were talking about that at the beginning. That was a terms for chaos. He was floating over it and he created order and structure out of it. Brought chaos back to allow things to start over again, and he brings the order and everything back, and he's promising now, it's not happening again. It's not happening again. I will not do this. But point out here, God said, I establish, this isn't because Noah begged, please, God, don't ever do this again. I don't want to build a ship, and I don't want my kids to build ships, or my grandchildren, or my great-great-great-great-grandchildren to build ships to do this again. God says, God takes the time to come up and do this. Now, some commentators say this is a response to Noah's offering. God was pleased with Noah's sacrifices and burnt offerings. And because of that, God says, you know what? Yeah, I guess now I'll make a cup. No, I I would beg to differ with that. I don't see a theological stance for that. What I would see here is very directly, God had a plan from the beginning. Sin happened. And God still has the same plan, and it's just reshaping things back to it, reshaping things back to his original plan for tangible flesh and the spirit realm, for all of these things to work intertwined together. And he wants that communion, and he wants that unity to happen, and he's reworking back. And God is saying, now, I'm just going about it. This set things in motion. Now we're going to go the right way. We're going to take care of things. We're going to get it down to business. I establish my covenant with you. This is not something you guys need to worry about. Be fruitful. Because look, what's this coming right after? Right after he says twice, be fruitful and multiply. Why would you want to be fruitful and multiply if you're afraid that God's just going to destroy and wipe everything that you've done and worked for out? God, if you're just going to wipe out all my generations, everything that we do, why would I want to be fruitful and multiply? What is the point? God knows the heart of man, and he tells them twice, be fruitful and multiply, and then he tells them, I establish my covenant with you. I make a solemn vow. I will never do this again. I will not do this again. You do not have to worry. In fact, I'm going to go beyond that. This isn't just for you. This isn't for just you and your generations after you. This isn't just for humanity. This is for every living creature on earth. I won't do it again. I will not do it again. And it says in verse 11, I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off. Now cut off the term here means to literally like cut off a hand, cut off a head, like disassociate. In broader terms, when somebody is cut off from a tribe or a family, it means they're no longer part of that. In this sort of term, when this is used and God uses it in this way, it means cut off from God's providence. Cut off from the living. Sent to the land of the dead. It would be shool, is what they would see in Hebrew. Dead, death, gods. You're no longer in where the living work. You're just, it's done. Now, that's not to say that there's nothing to exist after that. It's just saying, I am never going to cut it off and take it to where you are cut off. Your line is gone. You are dead and gone. Nothing comes afterwards, okay? 12 to 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you. Again, notice this. He starts with himself. I make between myself, me, and you. And every living creature that is with you, all of creation, every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And again, until the judgment, until that time comes. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now it's broadened to the entire earth. It's not just man and creatures. Now it's the whole earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Now, remember, the term remember in Hebrew means a whole lot more than what we think of. It is, a, it is beyond just a mental exercise. It is a full-on, I embrace this. I remember and emotionally remember. I thoughtfully remember. It is a full-on embodiment embracing of that. So when God sees a rainbow in the cloud, he remembers, I will remember the covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So reiterating it here. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. This does not end until judgment day. And even then it's not going to happen. I will... Remember the everlasting covenant between God himself and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. He's not going to to flood the earth again. That doesn't mean there's not going to be floods. It means there's not going to be floods that wipe out everything again, right? God sets this reminder up. But but look at this. I, I know whenever I, I've heard this story I'm growing up and, and hear Sunday school teachers teach this to kids, God wants you to, know, when you look up and you see the clouds and you see a rainbow, that's God's reminder to you that he's not going to, to flood the earth. And that's true, But is that what's being said? Is is what we're reading here saying, I am putting a rainbow, a bow in the cloud, so that when you see it, you remember that I'm not going to destroy you. No. What it says is, I'm putting this in there. And when I see that, I'm going to remember that I promised you I'm not going to destroy you by flood. I'm not going to wipe out all of creation again by flood. You don't have to remind me. I am reminding myself by every time I see a rainbow in the clouds. I remind myself and I will remember I'm not doing this again. I'm following the plan that I have set forth and getting things back throughout this plan. I'm not going to cut this off. Why? Well, if you follow through. <laughs> with with especially the old testament um even his chosen people kind of tick him off from time to time there there people humanity is can be humanity can be pretty frustrating <laughs> and if it's frustrating for us i mean god has infinitely more patience than us but uh whew, yeah i i deal with people I, you deal with people there's times right there's days there's days there's days right okay 18 and 19 we see a shifting of the gears here, 18 to 19. There's a massive shift of the gears. Goes from the rainbow, the covenant. I'm never flooding the earth again. I'm not destroying things again. Things are good. Be fruitful and multiply. Go do this. Not only that, I promise you I'm never going to do this again. Not only do I promise you, I'm setting myself reminders. And I'm letting you know about the reminders so they can be nice reminders to you as well. But they are a reminder for me that I'm not destroying the earth again. Not like that. Changes course here. 18 and 19. The sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. It's an interesting side marker until you get a little bit further. 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. This is a gigantic shifting of gears. Let's see why. 20 to 23. 23. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Means he started tilling and farming. He started farming to produce food because, you know, if you're going to live, you gotta need food. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. And they were pausing. Now, a few things here. First of all, he becomes a farmer. <laughs> like It's a natural thing, right? We need food. I've got to be able to provide and provide for my family and feed my family. We might as well start growing crops and start growing food. He becomes a farmer and he plants in a vineyard, or the term actually can also be orchard, but because he makes wine, they they take this as vine and vineyard. Now, wine here can actually just mean strong fermented drink. Some could say that as a beer. However, there is another word that we tend to see in Hebrew that sometimes some people say might be beer. I don't, it's just one of those things that, but just keep in mind, archaeologically, the belief is that beer may have started and developed prior to wine, especially in this region, but ancient beers, especially by the Acadians, were oftentimes made by dates, not not by hops, barley hops. So oftentimes they were made by dates, which again, you could have had an orchard, made the dates, made a date wine, which would have been considered a beer, yada, yada, yada. Anyway. He plants stuff, he makes a drink out of it, and he drinks it and he gets drunk. There's your story. All right. Now, this the the Hebrew term here for for wine, I'm going to butcher that. I'm not even going to say it. The, the Hebrew word there, it, it believes it, they believe it, it's probably a borrowed word. It seems to have more origins and roots from like the Europeans and from other things. So it was probably translated a little different at some point. But well, anyway, it's throughout the Old Testament 140 times and it's considered the common drink. It is just the absolute common drink. Now, some, and not only is it the common drink, but it is considered a light alcoholic drink. Now, people who take that into consideration, they have take that and morphed that into meaning, oh, it was a light alcoholic drink. Therefore, it was a weak drink and nobody was getting drunk. You couldn't get drunk off, well- Noah got drunk. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament and all even in the New Testament. They were getting drunk on wine. It happened. It happened all the time. They say it's a light drink because guess what? There were harder drinks. There were hard drinks and and drinks that were aged a little bit more. They used a little sweeter fruits, things like that to develop. If you've ever made wine or anything like that, you can have varying alcohol content. But just because it was light, the light in that just means they didn't add extra alcoholic content to it. They didn't add to the alcoholic content. It was the natural alcoholic content. And if you've ever had natural wine, you can still get the feelings from it. So doesn't mean that it's not possible to happen. Again, we see it here that it did happen. Now, Ham, who is the father of Canaan, is brought out for a reason. As we're about to see, the curse gets pointed towards Canaan, the offspring, which is fine because realistically, even though the blessings that we see are pointed and named at the sons of Noah, it's really towards their lineage. It's more towards the lineage. The blessing and everything goes there too. Now, the issue here, why, why does Noah make such a big deal of this? Well, first of all, again, things get lost in translation. When the scriptures here say he saw him naked, the term used here for saw is not just like a out of the corner of my eye. Oops, I can tell dad's naked. No, no, no. It is a inspected. The term here actually means inspected, seen thoroughly, like with intent. He went and searched out and inspected and like went all in, I guess, to to see that his dad was naked. So it wasn't just a glance and he noticed. It was a full-on inspection. He took time and energy to make sure he knew what was going on. Problem number one. Problem number two. Now, nakedness, scripturally, nakedness isn't a problem, but where and who you're around for nakedness is the problem. So, you because it's always been an indication of shame. What's the first thing from Adam and Eve? They recognized that they were naked and they covered themselves. That's an it's a thing for shame. Like we just know that. That's human nature. Other than again, a toddler that roams around and wants to take everything off, you can't hardly keep anything on him. So here we go. What's well, so what's the problem? Well, he was naked. So and then his son saw it. Well, his son didn't just see it, he inspected it. Well, nakedness is allowed if you're in privacy, right? Like if you're in the privacy of your own bedroom or whatever, well, they were just getting off the ark at this point, probably for a year or two off the ark or three or four or five or maybe 10. But anyway, they're off the ark for a little bit. Early peoples, and even today, there's still nomads to do this. They lived in tents. They didn't all live in one tent. These are all grown people at this point because his sons had wives. They had their own tents. Noah. Noah was in his own tent when he was naked ham sought him out went into what should have been his area of privacy and intentionally checked inspected i don't however you want to interpret this saw with intent him naked so the problem here is ham invaded him, his privacy more than just, oh, shoot, dad's naked, and turn around and walk away. Hey, guys, leave, leave dad alone. He's uh, indisposed at the moment. No. One, he invaded his privacy. He snooped in on him. Two, it wasn't just a glance. He recognized his dad was naked and started making fun of him about it. Three, he started making fun of him about it to his brothers. He took it and then went and gossiped about this. He went and gossiped about this with his brothers, and it became a kind of a laughing stock. Then his brothers, then Shem and Japheth, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, basically saying, "That's not right. Knock it off. What are you? He's in his area of privacy, and you're out. Uh, Let's let's go cover Dad. Let's go take care of him." And they walk backwards. They don't see him. They walk backwards and cover him up. Ham acted shamelessly. That's a bad thing. Shameless means bad. In today's culture, it doesn't always mean bad. But in reality, it means bad. Whereas Shem and Japheth acted with modesty and respect, understanding that what was happening was shameful. And so they wanted to protect their father and showed him respect by covering him up and allowing him modesty. 24 to 27, when Noah woke up from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Probably heard it from somebody, right? Knew what his youngest son had done to him because I'm sure there was rumors going because it sounded like he gossiped. 25, he said, cursed be Canaan. I'm bypassing you and I'm going straight to your son. Cursed be your line. Not only your line, I'm pushing it directly to your son. You are done. Your son is now cursed. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, the lowest of low, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, praises God. And then praises Shem, right? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. This isn't saying let Canaan be the servant of God. This is saying let Canaan be the servant of Shem. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. We maybe add also in that. So Noah finds out what's going on again word spreads. It's a, it's a family at this point. And even if this was 100 years down the line, because we'll find out in a moment, Noah lived to 350 years after that. Even if it was 100 years down the line, they could have 50 to 100 people there. Word spreads. Okay. Word spreads. Noah hears about it, finds out what was going on, was not happy. Now we see a repeating pattern here again. We see this repeating pattern. What happens? Adam and Eve have kids. Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Does wrong. The Cainites follow after Cain and do horrible, wicked things and grow worse and worse and worse and worse as time goes. And they have the line of Seth who try to follow God and Noah comes from the line of Seth, the only one who's seeking God. There we go. Now we get here, going to Canaan. The Canaanites succeed the Canaanites for the lawless. This is a returning pattern. The Canaanites succeed the Canaanites for the generations and the groups of lawlessness. And like the Canaanites, the following generations just follow in the footsteps and the lawlessness and going further and further and further away from God And humility and everything else, they just follow the ancestors. Now, why do I say that? Well, if we actually historically search through the line of Ham, based off of what we see through the scriptures and history, the line of Ham includes the beginnings of the Egyptians, who don't exactly do good things towards the Jews, the Philistines, who don't do good things towards the Jews, the Assyrians, same thing, and the Babylonians. That line is where the rest of these people groups come from. All of these things and all these groups who do horrific things, there, they start from that line. Not only do they do horrific things, now, pretty much all people groups have done horrific things, but they don't follow God. They go as far away from God as possible. Now, then we also see a pattern. You get the other sons. The blessings follow the other sons. So Seth's line follows Seth, and now we have the other sons here. The blessings and the curses were were more pointed towards the children of Shem, Ham, and Japheth rather than at them themselves. Now, it appears Shem would likely be the eldest because it seems like he's getting the uh, the patriarchal status. He's pointing him up and, and lifting him up and saying, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. When someone says something like that, that is a tendency to recognize and point out that is now the head of the household. And in Non individualistic cultures, when you're looking at collectivist cultures, there is a head of the household and that's multi generations down. And then when it gets to be too big, then it splits. Okay. And so oftentimes when you're reading the Old Testament, they would talk about, or even the New Testament, and they're talking about, oh, this guy had so many lands and so many sheeps. That's probably generations down. It wasn't like one guy was just rich and had everything, but they ran the entire household all the way down. Okay. It's just the way the collectivist society works. Now, He's pointing out and saying, Shem is the one who's taking over when Noah passes and dies. Shem, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem is following the Lord. Let Canaan be Shem's servant. It's going down that line saying, Shem is going to become the patriarch. And his line then, in essence, becomes the patriarchal line. Okay, which, again, you follow the lineage. The kingdom line comes from Shem's line. And then Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. D- dwelling in the tents intends to mean that there's some displacement that's going to happen. Like they're going to grow outwards and, and go out, but they're dwelling in tents of. They're underneath, which by the way, is very plausible with, with everything that happens with Japheth's line that goes out. That line actually spreads out into Antiola and into Greece. So they do spread out pretty far. And Ham being shamed, by not being named and the curse being passed over completely and going to his children and his son, Canaan. And that becomes the line of the Canaanites. And then finally, we get verses 28 and 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. There you go. Now, again, if you remember the math that we did last time, we said he was 601, but the flood lasted over a year. And so, but the flood itself, even though it was draining off, this timeline most likely is an indication of when the torrential rains were going. And then once the flood water started to go down and then it go down, went on beyond that. But end of the story, Noah lived 950 years. That's your timeline. What can we take away? The appropriate response to God's movement is worship. When God moves, even when he does things we don't completely understand, we have trust and faith that it is in his control and he knows what he's doing. Thus, we worship. God, on his own accord, established a covenant with mankind and with all living creatures, and then even later, all of earth. And he, in this covenant, says he would not destroy the earth and life with water again, over flooding and killing and wiping everything out again because of the sin of man. He then used the rainbow as a reminder to all, including himself, that this promise will last. While people being born in a sin-filled world are depraved from the start. That is, they they go against God. They're not inherently good. God can and does help believers to work against the flesh. We are told to fight our flesh, to have self-control, to have self-discipline. That is a characteristic of a God follower. And we are helped by the Holy Spirit in this. You're not alone in it. And we help each other too. It's something that we should Do is help each other through that as well. Finally, Noah, though found righteous, his sons took a very familiar split. One went towards the path against God, and the other two went with respect and respect towards God. Though life reset, humanity was still humanity. But God had and still has a plan. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this today. Thank you for being a God of plan and a God of action. Thank you for having a plan and following it and following it through. And and also thank you for setting up that covenant and giving us this wonderful sign. And as a reminder for not only ourselves, but as a reminder for you, God, that you are the type of God that will remind yourself about these sorts of things that this is that important, that you're setting up a reminder. And every time you see it, you remind yourself and you remember that you're not going to wipe out humanity that way. God, thank you for being who you are. And thank you for allowing us to walk with you and to worship you and to do life. Do it together and to do it with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. Bless us as we go out throughout this week. Encourage us to do what it is that you're calling us to do, each and every one of us, every day, every hour. God, just help us follow you further and closer and draw ever closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys again so much for this. Hope you guys are learning, growing. And uh, hey, we'll talk to you guys next time. Have a great one. God bless and bye-bye.